Welcome back. I'm Ron Sisko, and this is Focus, and today we're talking about inclusivity, culture, and appropriation. It's kind of a touchy subject today, most days, cultural appropriation especially. I should preface this by saying that what I say here is really about my experiences, but also how I feel when I watch the rest of the world kind of interact with cultures in general. It's important to note that I was born in the United States, in Connecticut, to two immigrant parents, one from South Korea and one from Costa Rica. That makes me first generation in between two cultures that don't really have a place together. It left me out of a lot of situations. I never felt welcome with any of the Asian communities, and I never felt really welcome with any of the Hispanic communities, although when I learned to speak a little bit of Spanish, they were much more accepting of me than they might have been. I don't look white. I don't really look Asian. And I certainly don't look Hispanic. Most people would describe me as Hawaiian or Samoan, which isn't a bad place to be. We ended the last episode, and it's weird to say episode, talking about inclusivity and culture and experience and diversity. And it's kind of a strange thing for me to talk about because my culture, I would say that that's something we developed in our household. And I wouldn't call it idyllic, but it's still something that belongs to me and not something I can really share with anyone else. We grew up eating a lot of food that my parents both grew up with, some of the dishes being Korean, bulgogi kimchi, some of them being Costa Rican or at least Hispanic in nature. Oh my God, I've had so much rice and beans in my life. Ropa vieja. And all of those meals were cooked by my mother, who in an attempt to kind of make things easier for my father would cook dishes that he was familiar with, even though she didn't know how to do it. He, we'd have a couple of meals with our family, well, my father's side of the family, and she'd kind of figure out how to make those things. Admittedly, her replications of those dishes weren't one-to-one, but she did the best she could. The Korean dishes, however, were, I would say, pretty spot-on. She knew exactly what she was doing with Korean food, which is always fascinating to me when I go to a Korean restaurant that's been Americanized in some way. I wouldn't say I had a typical American experience as a childhood, Growing up colored but not belonging to a specific subset always left me out. I made friends on all sides of all fields. I also made enemies on all sides of all fields. But I never really belonged to anyone. But it's kind of an interesting concept to belong to someone, to belong to a group of people, to identify specifically with a group of people. I've only met one other person mixed the way I am. And she was mixed opposite. Her mother was Costa Rican and her father was South Korean. What a strange thing. We were both left out. We didn't really have anything to say to each other. Hmm. What a weird weird childhood we had, huh? Yeah, that's pretty crazy. How's that first generation immigrant child thing going for you? Oh, it's great. Great. No, mostly our conversation was, hi, nice to meet you, and silence kind of a missed opportunity, I'd say, just because it would have been interesting now as an adult to compare notes. I think I was 13 or 14 at the time. Not that I was particularly shy talking to women, 
girls, I suppose. But I definitely was not interested in having that conversation. Interestingly, being a child of first-generation immigrants, both of my parents had permanent resident green cards. They didn't apply for citizenship until much later. It was, it was such an interesting priority. Raising a family was so much more of a financial priority than becoming citizens, even though they love this country. They couldn't vote here, but they love this country. And they lived here, and their children were here. We were citizens here. And we went to school here, and we're educated here, and we learned to speak here, which is why I don't speak with a particular accent either way. That's a different story for another day. But after we graduated high school, my brother and I, it was a priority. Both of my parents are registered citizens now. They've always paid their taxes. And so I feel like as a person grown up in a situation like that, I get to speak specifically about what it looks like when people argue about inclusivity and cultural appropriation. I kind of want to start this conversation now that I've given you a five-minute disclosure about my childhood. I wanted to start this conversation on the subject of food, which sounds kind of weird. The whole reason I came up with the idea for this particular podcast was I was watching a show on Netflix about pizza. And... It was such an interesting, I found it very interesting. I love food shows in general. I'm sure most of us do. That's the joke. In the future, there will be two buttons on Netflix, food and murder. I was watching a food show and they were talking about pizza and how a lot of people in New York believe that they have the best pizzas. And all of these pizza places have Italian names behind them. And then New Haven, Connecticut is actually considered like a pizza mecca in the United States where they have so many different types of pizza. And so many people are pizza purists. They only believe in cheese, sauce, topping. That's what pizza is. Everything else is flatbread. Where do we become gatekeepers of a specific ideal? They traveled to, I think, Naples in Italy in order to open a pizzeria in Naples and have a Neapolitan pizza certification, your pizza has to meet a specific exacting set of standards based on taste, consistency, smell, makeup, thickness. There's a person whose job it is, and I'll talk about him in a second, whose job it is to certify the pizza as a Neapolitan pizza so that these people can pay money to, to, to advertise their pizza as Neapolitan pizza. Now, to me, having a pizza in Naples is Neapolitan. It comes from there. And this man functions as a gatekeeper. I would say he's an extortionist, but that's me coloring the argument. As a gatekeeper of culture, he says, unless you define yourself in this way, you cannot be called a representative of it. And to me, that's such an irresponsible use of culture to hold it hostage for a cost, to have to fit the demands of a human being, to let another person dictate what your expression of food is. And the reason I want to bring that up is because I think food is the perfect example of 
how we stop evolving or how we could continue evolving as a culture if we let go of the ideals of appropriation. Now I get it. It's hard when you are not white, specifically when you're black, but the Asian community definitely feels that weight, especially in Hollywood. And the Hispanic community definitely feels that way in regard to food because the common joke about food from Mexicans is Americans love our food, but they don't like us. Which is certainly an interesting proposition. Food, chefs, restaurants entail these experiences that are supposed to represent culture in some way. And it's not necessarily the experience of eating at home, but the experience of consuming what someone might have consumed in a different country. Or maybe you're in another country eating that specific thing. And from a standpoint of business, it's one of the strange conversations we kind of have to have about cultural appropriation. Whenever we talk about hip-hop especially... Cultural appropriation becomes a key argument about why white rappers aren't allowed to be as expressive or wear their hair a certain way or wear clothing a certain way because the black community says that they feel their image is being taken and resold for profit. And we do that in food. And I think from, from the dynamics of not just race but origin like the Neapolitan Pizza Certification Board. I've recorded that three times, and I keep saying extortionist, a certification board. Having experience with a specific type of food means that you want to study, work in a kitchen, learning how to make the food in an authentic manner. I think it's so interesting that literally anyone could open an Italian restaurant in the United States, and no one would bat an eye. And right now, Gordon Ramsay regardless of what you think of him, is attempting to open an authentic Asian restaurant and it's got everyone up in arms. I've had to kind of re-record this episode because I wanted to include this specific conversation, this narrative. Gordon Ramsay is respected as a chef by pretty much everyone who's not a chef and then a lot of people who are chefs. Uh, If you don't like Gordon Ramsay, more than likely you don't like his antics on American television. But I find him to be kind of a a fascinating human being. To, To watch him interact with people, people are a secondary function to what he does. He loves food. He has such an immense respect for food. To me, when someone tells me Gordon Ramsay wants to open an Asian restaurant, I can only think, I bet he's done the homework. I bet he understands why everything's done. I, I think I know why he feels like he can call it an authentic restaurant. But understandably, the Asian community says, wait, wait a second. You're not going to hire an Asian chef? Because the chef will not be Asian. That's a great question. How much does that matter? And I can't answer that. But I can kind of talk about it. And I can... I can tell you how I feel about it. I don't feel like it's necessarily an insult. Asian chefs exist and they cook in a lot of places, a lot of food. And so gatekeeping Asian food 
behind an Asian chef is a different experience. I think it would be a different argument to say, I learned food from a British chef. And he taught me how to make Asian cuisine. That would feel inauthentic. But so much of food is wrapped up in respect. One of the first things that you get taught in culinary school is to respect your tools and to respect your ingredients. Respecting your ingredients and your tools are the first steps to creating something, something different, something interesting. Understanding your craft is how you show your love for food. You don't become a chef because you don't love food. If it's anything but not loving food, you will not last long. Being a chef is a miserable enterprise. You might travel quite a bit, but your travel is going to be laden with 60 to 70 hour weeks working for a man who's very angry and very hard on you, basically because he grew up that way. He believes that his exacting standards must be taught to you in the same manner a drill sergeant teaches a cadet. And I can't tell if he's right or not, because I don't know that world. But Gordon Ramsay has a lot of respect for that. A lot of the other chefs out there look at those things as badges of honor. I did my turn with this chef. He worked me for 80 hours a week, six days a week, and if you didn't show up on the seventh day, you may as well not have shown up for the next week. And in any other industry, we would say, that's abusive. You should definitely complain about that. But in the culinary industry, they, we say, that's art. You have to do your part, pay your dues. A study is so important to the final product of food. Consequence. There's a science to it, but then a feeling. Because you can tell when someone doesn't care when they've made food. Even if it tastes good, the presentation will be wrong. Or they don't understand the flavor combinations. They haven't spent the time to make it work consistently. It reminds me of a specific thing that happens in... I don't know if it happens in the other countries, but in the United States, fusion is huge. We fuse... Asian and Hispanic cuisine constantly or we make burgers that are Asian inspired or we we have food trucks that combine two or three different types of food in in some amalgamous flavor explosion I don't really know how to explain this stuff I'm not I'm not a food guy I love the taste of food but but I'm not I'm not a chef now, fusion is something that we look at and we say, that's, that's kind of interesting. That's a new take on it. I think fusion is, is exciting. It's different. It's diversity. We look at a new presentation for a taco, a different kind of pizza. I know Pizzeria Lola in Minneapolis has a kimchi pizza that I find delight delightful, although some people would argue it's a flatbread. I think fusion is, is an incredible respect for food. The realization that flavors don't have to be separate just because they grew up separate. And as a mixed race kid, that kind of thing speaks to me. Fusion is great. Now, mockery doesn't have its place. You don't, you don't combine two things to make fun of another thing. You don't, you don't combine two things to say, this thing is superior and the other thing is inferior. You say, you say these two things work together. They complement each other to make each other better. 
And nobody complains about fusion. Nobody complains about the concept of fusion. Some people have a problem with how some of the fusion tastes. And I'll be honest with you, I've had some pretty bad fusion out there. But you have to be careful. You have to be respectful. You have to really spend your time understanding what you're doing. And I think that kind of attitude toward food, toward people, that education, that care, is the dividing line between what we look at as cultural appropriation, what we say is a bad word. Cultural appropriation has a negative connotation. When we say appropriation, we talk about the idea mostly of white people taking something and then making it their own. Appropriation doesn't really exist for other races. And this is where the topic gets kind of spiny. You might not want to hear it, but I wanted to talk about it because I feel like we should. We should have a dialogue. White history is peppered with atrocities, but all histories are peppered with atrocities. And we all still hold on to a lot of the grudges. I can tell you a lot of Koreans are still very upset about what happened between them and Japan all those years ago. And even though so many of those people are removed from it, they still feel that anger. So it doesn't exist only for white people. But being in America, that's the narrative. White people came and they took the land from the natives. They came and they made their own nation. They came... And then they started gatekeeping who would be allowed to be here. Understandably, there's a lot of negativity toward that. But holding on to that negativity is so counterproductive because until we can move past that, we can't have a real conversation about what becomes appropriation and whether or not appropriation is even a negative thing because I don't believe it is. Appropriation is what we've labeled what used to happen in a lot of the really populated areas of this country. Now, in a lot of isolated areas, that is a scary thought to people. But in New York especially, the melting pot of our melting pot, neighborhoods wedged up against neighborhoods, we would be forced to interact at some point. My father's favorite dish growing up, regardless of his... Hispanic upbringing or my mother's amazing Asian cooking was spaghetti with meat sauce and rice and beans because he loved rice and beans that much, but he also loved spaghetti with meat sauce. Appropriation is a negative word only when there isn't a respect behind it. It's an interesting thing to look at what we are comfortable with and what we aren't what we call people out for. I remember hearing a story about an Instagram model who got a dark tan because she spent a lot of time outdoors. And she was called out and forced, I think, off of Instagram, but I'm not sure, at least forced into seclusion for a period of time because her skin was so dark that people accused her of attempting to look black. But at what point does context become important? Or can we do things without context? Should we do things without context? Context is the personality. Context is 
the end goal. Context is our journey. Context is the definition of everything that's happened. There's a difference between a costume and a culture. There's a difference between cosplay and blackface. And that's kind of interesting. Cosplay is is a great avenue of, of this question becoming an imperative issue. Creating a costume for yourself to play as a character. A lot of people wonder where to draw the line. A cosplay is a character. The character may be black, may be Asian, but there's no reason to become black or Asian for the character. You are playing the character. In acting, they hire you to play a role, not the other way around. And costuming becomes dangerous when it becomes an expression of someone else's culture without respect. I think back to my childhood again, and I grew up in Connecticut, and I'm sure things have changed radically since when I grew up, but I remember having the conversations about Thanksgiving. Oh my God, Thanksgiving. You know exactly where this is headed. I grew up thinking it was fine to make a Native American headdress out of poster board and crayon and a feather. How incredibly insulting. I'm so sorry. And I didn't know, you know, I was led by an adult to do this. But I am sorry from my heart that that was done. Look at how we diminish the culture by taking all of their suffering and stuffing it into a lesson that said, we can all work together. In the meantime, ignoring the genocide of a people, a beautiful culture that we should be understanding, that we should be listening to. What a terrible thing. What a terrible thing. But the truth of the matter is, cultural integration, appropriation, is survival. Nothing we've done culturally, and not just in America, any other culture, is anything but if evolution, protection, creating those integrations, allowing other people to appropriate our culture is how the culture continues on. Because if you gatekeep it and say that only this belongs to our people, someday your people will not associate with you in the same way that I cannot associate with Koreans or Costa Ricans. Despite my bloodlines running there, I grew up with none of that. I am an American. And what does it mean to be an American? What should it mean? To me, it means that everything is here and possible, and we can be together with all of the things that we have. We can share those things. So as long as it's not a mockery, is it a negative thing? Where do you stand? I think if you ask yourself that question, where is the line for cultural appropriation? You might have a different answer than what the narrative might be in the media, on Twitter, on Facebook, 
blackface isn't okay. But is there really something wrong with building an Asian restaurant? It doesn't make sense to me to hire a Japanese actor to play a Korean character. You're replacing one type of Asian for another type of Asian out of ignorance. Both of those types of actors exist. It doesn't make sense to me to hire a white actor to play Hispanic or black. Those exist. We are here. But with respect, we can adopt each other's cultures. We can express the beauty there. And that enrichment is attention. And attention is an opportunity to educate. Education, integration, to me, is survival. And so I hope you listen to this, if you're listening, and you think about what, what defines cultural appropriation and what does it mean to you. Thank you for listening. Focus is a Patreon-supported podcast. You can find out more at focusbycisco.com. If you have any questions or any comments, I'd love to hear about it, especially on this topic. It's such an important topic. I hope that if this meant something to you, you'll share it with someone that you think would love to hear it, and not because you think they should hear it. I'd like to thank my Patreon supporters, Anastasia Baverhausen and Vigilanthe. Your support makes this possible. I will see you when the plot requires it, but until next time, be excellent to each other.